Hello and welcome to the History of the Copts, episode 44, A Fast for Heraclius. So last we stopped, the Persians were on the doorsteps of Constantinople, and the Prophet Muhammad was about to start his hijra or emigration from Mecca to Medina. Basically, year one in the Islamic calendar. But we will keep that for next week. The situation in the empire was obviously desperate and called for drastic measures on the part of the Byzantines. Generous peace offers were made to the Persians to keep the conquered territory, plus a hefty yearly tribute. But it seems that the offers were rebuffed, or that the tribute was accepted, but no formal peace treaty was signed. Desperate, Heraclius sought about abandoning Constantinople and moving back to North Africa, his home base. But this, as expected, met with serious resistance, especially from the Patriarch of Constantinople. Finally, Sergius, the Patriarch, offered all of the church wealth to Heraclius to undertake an all-or-nothing holy war against the Persians. And this how a long, impressive campaign started that reversed all of the previous gains by the Persians. Most of the action ended up taking place far away from Egypt, in the mountains of Armenia and then modern-day Iraq into Persia itself, so we will not go through its many remarkable details. It is worth highlighting that Heraclius really upended the rules of the game. First, he did not go to liberate the conquered territory. Rather, he went directly to the heartland of Persia, inflicting the pain of war on Khosrow's most loyal subjects. Second, just like the loss of the true cross undermined the psyche of the Christians, Heraclius went for the symbolic fire temples in Persia and destroyed them, causing the same kind of psychological damage. Lastly, in this campaign, he exploited every single internal Persian conflict, and by the end, the most capable Persian general abandoned his king, and an all but name defected to the Byzantines. And this is really ignoring all of the innovative and daring military strategy and tactics employed. The old tradition of not fighting during the winter was abandoned. Bridges, mountain passes, and even fog were all employed to the advantage of Heraclius' forces. The remarkable campaign ended less than 80 miles away from the Persian capital when Heraclius sent a message to Khosrow, a memorable beast offer that states, quote, I pursue and run after beasts. I do not willingly burn Persia, but compelled by you, let us now throw down our arms and embrace peace. Let us quench the fire before it burns up everything. The Persian king rebuffed the offer so. To him, all that was needed was just one more Byzantine defeat. The walls of the Persian capital could be the catalyst for that defeat. Alas, the elite corps around him felt otherwise. Heraclius was literally burning their house and estates, and they had no interest in ruling a kingdom of ashes. 
Thus, a relatively clean palace coup took place. Kusru was assassinated and his son was elevated as a figurehead monarch. Peace was then pursued, where, in return for Heraclius evacuating Persia, all the conquered territory, including Egypt, would return to the empire. War prisoners would be released, and the true cross and other looted treasures would be returned. And that's how a 25 years of war between Persia and the Romans have ended. Was really nothing gained for either side, but hundreds of thousands of dead productive inhabitants, financial collapse, and misery. Heraclius can at least spin the whole thing as victory, and through the fancy celebrations that followed the victory and the extensive use of religious relics, establish a veneer of greatness around him. But the Persians, there was just no way to spin this into anything good. There would be political instability until the empire collapses under the weight of the Arabs, and all the resources and manpower of Persia transfer over to the Caliphate. By 630 AD, the True Cross was back in Jerusalem, the Persians were out of Egypt, and Pope Andronicus was laid to rest, replaced by the 38th Patriarch of Alexandria, and the first that will eventually operate under Arab rule. To be accurate, Bob Andronicus had actually passed away eight years earlier, but the narrative was just too busy to get to it. And this is really a point to highlight here. In these times of upheaval, the Coptic Church was reeling, and their influence in Egypt was entirely replaced by a group of aristocratic elite who ran the country. There was no love lost between the local Persian administration and the Coptic Church, at least by the account of the history of the patriarchs. The major landowners had major incentives to work with the Persians, especially once you go beyond the top tier of families, similar to the Abians, who were wealthy but had deep ties to Constantinople that compromised their loyalty. If you are wondering, this is where the Abians disappear from the historical record. The tier just below that, i.e. wealthy, but not necessarily politically connected to the Byzantine, saw their fortunes rise. They had no qualms about working with non-Christians, and they were happy to collect taxes on behalf of the Persians. Tasks that bishops were not very big on. At any case, once Andronicus had died, Pope Benjamin was elected to replace him. Benjamin, in the words of the history of the patriarchs, longed for, quote, the monastic life. So he left his parents and all what they had, for they were very rich, and departed to the monastery. From the monastery, he ended up in the circle of Andronicus' advisors, and eventually succeeded him quite naturally. For the first six to seven years of his reign, he was the only patriarch of Alexandria, like Andronicus, and it seems that he was left to function in Alexandria freely. In other words, he had a financially weakened, less influential church that was ideologically free to pursue its own course. Into this world, Heraclius appears, 
and all of the sudden, the questions of what to do about the Patriarchy of Alexandria comes back again. Heraclius had spent tremendous resources after the victory to promote his image as a victorious, biased, orthodox emperor. His trip from Constantinople to Jerusalem with the True Cross was a masterfully planned propaganda tour to raise the spirits of his subjects after the war. This is where he presumably received the letter from the Prophet Muhammad that invited him to join Islam. But this is probably more in a realm of legend than historical truth. Anyway, as a pious and orthodox emperor, Heraclius was supposed to return the heretics to the fold, and of course, oppose the Jews and the pagans. So, entering Jerusalem, all the old wounds between the local Christians and the Jews were brought to the front, where the Jews were accused by the Christians of, quote, the slaughter of the Christians and the demolition and burning of the churches during the Persian conquest. Complicating Heraclius' response to them was that he has already given written assurances and oaths for the safety of the Jewish population in return for their gifts. But that was no worry. The clergy in Jerusalem assured him that he can break his oaths as it was done in ignorance of the facts and prompted him to deal harshly with the Jews of Palestine. As such, an edict was issued by which the Jews were driven out of Jerusalem and forbidden to come again within three miles of the city wall. And the edict on the ground really meant a massacre and forced baptisms, not gentle reminders to leave. Things really got out of hand, and either because Heraclius and the ecclesiastical elite felt guilty about the whole thing, or it was for the breaking of the oath, a week fast on the occasion was initiated for, quote, all the ages. The fast of Heraclius, as it came to be known, was incorporated before the 40 days of fasting leading to Easter that St. Athanasius had started 300 years earlier. And when the Passion Week is added to those combined days, you get 55 days, otherwise known as Lent in the Coptic Church, a tradition upheld to this day. Also, to be fair, very few know who Heraclius is and why the fast started. Nowadays, the extra week is considered a preparation week, a time when one prepares themselves for the intense period of spirituality that's supposed to be fasting. But to go back to the narrative, once the Jews were taken care of, the unorthodox, whose air quotes in there, became the next item on the to-do list of the orthodox emperor. The Persians have empowered the Miaphysites, and from Armenia to Alexandria, the empire now had exclusive Miaphysite bishops, or in rare instances, even Nestorian bishops. Removing these guys and replacing all of them with Chalcedonian bishops would have caused massive upheaval and was really unpractical. Leaving them alone would have also been extremely unpopular in the capital and undermined the legacy of Heraclius. Farther, there was already a fruitful partnership between the patriarch Sergius and Heraclius, 
So Sergius took the lead on coming up with a solution to this problem. To his credit, Sergius was a serious theologian and had a nuanced understanding of the issue, which led him to a reasonable theological compromise that in theory could work, but on the ground it was very impractical. Sergius was a Syrian and grew up in a mostly Miaphysite environment, with his parents being Miaphysites. So he understood the theological issues quite well, and from a purely and intellectual point of view, as I said, his compromise was reasonable. The compromise was confessing a Christ that was out of two nature, that were completely inseparable and had one will and one operation, also known was the technical name of monoenergism, single energy. This was way closer to the traditional Miaphysite severe thinking than it was to the Neo-Chalcedonians or the traditional Chalcedonians. There was in essence a Miaphysite position with the word two natures and crucially keeping Chalcedon. It could and it did work on the elite thinkers and the theologians of the day. But the everyday monk and Miaphysite Christian saw the words Chalcedon and two natures and immediately dismissed the whole thing as another misguided heresy from Constantinople. The theological solution was actually worked out before Heraclius embarked on his campaign, and he used it whenever he encountered Miaphysite bishops on the way. Most of them, seeing Heraclius walking in with an army, just went along without explicitly accepting or rejecting the concept. This, I see where you're coming from and I encourage the effort attitude, mostly played out in Armenia and around modern-day Georgia, where the early military action took place. But one bishop in the area stood out for his early enthusiastic response to the idea. The Metropolitan of the Kingdom of Lazica, Cyrus, to be known to history as Cyrus the Caucasian, or as the Arabs would call him, Al-Mukaukas. Cyrus' embrace of monoenergism would bring him close to Heraclius, and eventually he would serve as the most influential religious advisor to the emperor after the patriarch. Now, to get a geographical sense, Lazica was a tiny client kingdom on the shores of the Black Sea. Thinly populated, full of mountains, with harsh climates, and forever fought over by the Persians and the Byzantines. In other words, it shared nothing with the populated, wealthy, warm, and urban Egypt. Al-Mukaukas would be the quintessential foreigner there, a stranger in a strange land, a detested figure that would never warm up to the Copts, but we will get there in a bit. For now, he and Heraclius got along, and he became one of monoenergism's best advocates. After the trip to Jerusalem, Heraclius really started the push to unite the empire under one church, where its faith and orthodoxy is defined by Sergius' ideas. The Armenian church folded first. Heraclius was from an Armenian background, and as mentioned before, he has already put the groundwork during the military campaigns. 
Next was Syria, where the Miaphysite and only patriarch of Antioch, Athanasius, made it clear that there is no way he's going to accept Chalcedon, monarchism or not. Heraclius, to his credit, then met in person with the patriarch of Antioch and a group of Syrian bishops, and again it was made clear that the Syrians will not be a part of a church that accepted Chalcedon. Remarkably, the bishops refused to take communion with the emperor unless he condemns Chalcedon first. A defiant act that took a lot of courage. This is basically at the level of Ambrose of Milan refusing to give communion to Theodosius, if you remember that from a while back. But unlike Theodosius, Heraclius did not give in to the bishop's demands. Rather, he confiscated the church from the Syrian Miaphysites and gave it to Chalcedonian clergy imported from the capital, who were happy to administer communion to the emperor. And this is where monotheism died. Not officially, it's going to actually outlive Heraclius, but in every other sense. The popular sentiment of the Miaphysites turned against a compromise, and a core of opposition also developed against it from the Chalcedonians. And rather than see the writing on the wall and let the issue go, Heraclius pushed it to the limit and caused a major disconnect between the imperial administration and the inhabitants of the empire, specifically Egypt and Syria. Now, I want to stress something before going forward, and this is really super important from the big historical picture perspective. Pushing monarchism after it died was a ridiculous policy, and it probably caused more harm than good, especially in Egypt. But it had very little to do with the upcoming collapse of the Byzantines in the face of the Arabs. The issue leading to that development was deep-rooted problems in the military structure of the Byzantine armies that was exacerbated by a bad financial situation and a misguided foreign policy in regards to the Arabs. But more on that on next week. For now, resistance was building up toward Heraclius' policies from all sides. The Patriarch of Jerusalem opposed it because it compromised Chalcedon, and the Patriarchy of Antioch also opposed it because it kept Chalcedon. In Egypt, however, this was to become the scene of Heraclius's biggest failures. As a reminder, Pope Benjamin was in control there for the last seven years or so, and doing pretty well, as far as you can tell. The vast majority of the Copts regarded him as orthodox, and as a former monk, he was extremely popular with the monastic establishment as well. He, since the Persians have left, and especially after the incidents with the Syrian Miaphysites, wanted nothing to do with monoenergism. And as a result, his relationship with the imperial officials deteriorated pretty quickly, and he exiled himself outside of Alexandria to the monasteries, as the tradition have been before the Persians. This in of itself was not a big deal. Heraclius could have appointed another Jean the almsgiver figure, and life would have moved on, and who knows, could have even won Alexandria and the aristocrats to monoenergism.
Instead, he appointed the worst possible candidate for the office, Cyrus the Caucasian. And not only as the patriarch, but as the supreme leader of Egypt, patriarch, governor, and general. As soon as Al-Mukaukas arrived, ecclesiastical resistance became the official policy of the Coptic Church. Pope Benjamin went into hiding, and he instructed all of the Miaphysite bishops to do the same. Basically, if you cannot find us, then you cannot force your unorthodox policy on us. Unfortunately, Cyrus reacted harshly, with very little carrots and plenty of sticks in the form of military force, economic sanction, and arbitrary torture and arrest. As he could not arrest Benjamin, the next best thing was Benjamin's brother, a man named Mina. Under the order of Cyrus, Mina was arrested, tortured, and then drowned. And another source, also one that was written about 200 years later, and probably embellished a bit, Cyrus is called by a steward of a monastery that housed a famous monk named Samuel, quote, a blasphemer, a Chalcedonian Jew, an atheist, a man unworthy to celebrate the liturgy, unworthy of all communion. As a result, Samuel also gets arrested and tortured. He was to be executed, but an influential aristocrat intervened and saved his life. It was, by all accounts, a reign of terror. The worst decade in Egypt in a religious conflict since, dare I say, the Great Persecution. Also, to be fair, this was not really a Chalcedonian versus Miaphysite thing. Rather, it was more of a failed policy implemented by bad personnel. I'm not going to go into it because it's peripheral to our narrative. But the Chalcedonians and Palestine, under an influential patriarch of Jerusalem, hated Cyrus as much as the Copts did. They were far enough to be spared from the reign of terror, but Cyrus alienated everyone he got in contact with, except Heraclius, who probably had no idea of what is going on in Egypt. Cyrus, like all mediocre middle managers, put more effort in convincing the big boss that he's doing a good job than actually doing a good job. A couple of years into his reign, he assembled a synod of any clergy that he managed to get his hand on. Some Chalcedonians, some from the sect of Julian and Gaianus, and some mainstream Miaphysites. From that synod, he produced a statement accepting monoenergism and framed the whole thing to Heraclius as that he has won Egypt over, except for a few troublemakers here and there, which was as far away from the truth as you can get. The Synod had two Miaphysite Coptic bishops, out of probably around a hundred or so. One of them was the Bishop of Nico, who had a sizable garrison in his city and could not escape. And even the Gaianus Julian sect. Eventually, they got tired of Cyrus 
and a plot was being formulated to rise up against him. The plot was discovered so, and some of the plotters were executed, and some were punished by the cutting off of their hands. In this very same year that the Synod took place in, the Prophet Muhammad died in the Arabian Peninsula, but not after uniting the various tribes under the banner of one God and his Prophet. A community of believers who had been in various states of war over the last decade, community of veteran warriors and merchants who saw vulnerable empires and their borders. Within six years, Damascus and Jerusalem would fall. Ten years after that, the Persian Empire would collapse and Byzantium would barely survive. The Caliphate would be born and encompass all the territories held by Persia and Byzantium, but Anatolia and pockets in Europe. And this is where we're going to go next week, where we will take a step back and look at the world that gave rise to Islam and its early beginnings. Thank you for listening, farewell, and until next week.